Well, good morning. Good to be here again this morning. I'll be here this week. We're actually finishing up our I Am series, and then next week I'll lead off kind of a questions series. Uh, we're going to be talking about law and grace next week, so I hope to see you back then. But I just want to give you a quick review of where we've been, uh, just in case maybe you haven't been around. And, well, today's a good day because I'm going to run through real quick every IAM statement we've looked at and just very quickly here. So, so far we started in John 4. John 4, Jesus meets the woman at the well and says, I am He. And we talked about how Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus said later, it is I. And we talked about how Jesus is our protector. And then Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And we talked about how Jesus is our satisfaction. And Jesus said, I am from him. We talked about how Jesus was sent from God. He said, I am the light of the world. It's Jesus who enlightens us. I am, period. Jesus is God. I am the door. He gives us true life. I am the resurrection and the life. He gives us eternal life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way to salvation. I am the true vine. We are to abide in Him. And then the last message Pastor Keith preached in the series was, I am He where it's Jesus as God submits himself to the cross for our sake. And then we came to last week where we celebrated the resurrection of Christ. Our choir gave a great performance and, and musical just celebrating the resurrection. And so this morning, we're going to pick up the story. It's after the resurrection. We're in John chapter 20. So as we prepare to dive into just a few verses here this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, I pray that you bless our time together. I pray that you will uh, use this time as an encouragement, as an admonishment, as, a, as something we can learn from and apply to our lives. Lord, be with us as we expound your truth this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. So John chapter 20, verse 19 gives us the context. If you just look at the first couple of phrases there, verse 19 of John chapter 20, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Well, the day, that day, is the resurrection day. Jesus had risen from the grave early that morning. It's the first day of the week. It's Sunday morning, resurrection day. But now it's night. It's evening. It's probably a little late because a lot has been happening this day. Jesus Christ rose early in the morning. Mary came to the tomb. He wasn't there. Then he appeared. So Jesus had a conversation with Mary. Mary ran, told the disciples. John and Peter had seen the empty tomb. Jesus had appeared to the other women at the grave. Um, Jesus had appeared to Peter sometime between the morning and the evening. Jesus had also appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So this is a busy day in the life of Christ. It's Resurrection Sunday, and a lot is going on. But as we continue looking in verse 19, we see how the disciples are feeling. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So here's the setting. It's a busy day. Christ is risen. Some of the disciples have seen the empty tomb. Peter has had a conversation, has seen the risen Christ, but all the disciples are huddled in a room scared. 
They're huddled in a room scared. They're fearing the Jews. They probably already started to hear accusations of, hey, those disciples stole the body. They weren't sure what people would think. They weren't sure maybe if they knew exactly everything that was going on. They knew that Jesus was not in the tomb, but they didn't really understand all that was happening. And so they were scared. They locked the door. They're huddled together. And then enters Jesus. Continue in verse 19. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And so before we get to the I am statement this morning, I think there's something important here to notice. And it's simply this. Jesus knows you. What do I mean by that? Well, think about the situation that we just explained. The disciples are there huddled, scared, unsure, not knowing what's going on. Surely, during that time, as they're together, they're replaying the past 48, 72 hours in their mind. They're thinking about that Last Supper, the last time that Jesus talked to them. They're going through like, man, what was Jesus talking about? And I don't know. And then their minds go to the garden. Man, Jesus just wanted us to stay up and pray, and we couldn't even do that. And then, oh man, Judas, can you believe Judas betrayed Jesus? And then, man, we were there in the garden when all of those guards came to take Jesus And he let them. And what happened? Mark tells us that when the people came to arrest Jesus and they took him, the disciples fled. All the disciples fled. They all ran away. And then you have Peter, who is probably the most, feeling the most guilty of them all, as he's recounting, I told Jesus I would never deny him. I would die for him. But he was right. There I denied him. Three times, just like he said he would. And then he was crucified. Man, can you imagine what these disciples are feeling like? And so when Jesus shows up, he says, What are you guys doing? Why are you here? Where were you the other night? I can't believe you wouldn't have faith. What are you doing locked in this room? No, that's not what he says. He comes in and he says, Peace be unto you. No condemnation, no accusations, no questions, no disappointment even, no rebuke. He says, peace be unto you. Why would he say that? I think he says that because he knows the disciples. He knows they don't have it all together. He knows they've made mistakes and they don't quite still understand all that's happening. But he also knows they love him. He also knows that they want to follow him. And he knows what they needed. They didn't need rebuke. They didn't need correction. They needed Jesus. They needed him. And so he comes in and he says, peace be unto you. And then verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then if you look at the account of Luke, he asks for something to eat. So he comes in, peace, look at my hands. It's me. It's Jesus. Look at my side. Hey, do you have anything to eat? You know, when Jesus asked for something to eat, it wasn't because he was hungry. I mean, I'm sure it was a lot of work, you know, raising from the dead and everything. But he wasn't really hungry. That wasn't what it was about. He was doing that for the disciples. He's saying, look, it's me. Look at my hands. Look at my side. I'm hungry. Watch me eat. I'm not a ghost. I'm not some hallucination. Touch me. Feel me. Hold me. Watch. Break bread with me. 
This is what the disciples needed. And the rest of verse 20. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus knew the disciples' fears. He understood maybe even their concerns, their skepticism, their grief. I would say he also knows ours. He knows you. He knows your fears, your disappointments, your mistakes, your failures. And the message that I believe he comes to you with is one of peace. Peace. If you're his disciple, peace. But here's the crazy thing. When Jesus comes and he says, peace be unto you, look, this is who I am, the disciples get excited and they're like, great, awesome, this is wonderful. And, he, and he, we could totally understand if Jesus was saying, you guys are messed up, or you didn't listen to my instructions, I don't know why you're here, you should know better than this. He doesn't do all that. And what he does is not only does he know them, he's about to call them to a mission. He calls these same people that keep kind of messing up, he calls them. And he calls them to a most important mission. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So not only does Jesus know you, Jesus sends you. Not only does Jesus know the disciples and send the disciples, He knows us and He sends us. Jesus gives his disciples a commission. As I was sent from the Father, now I am sending you. Well, what does it mean? What, how do we process through how Jesus was sent and what does that really have to do with me? Okay, that's a good question. So we're gonna, I'm gonna give you a few things, uh, to think about. What I think we need to do is just look back and see, well, what was Jesus sent to do? Why did he come to this earth? And you can go through Scripture. I'm going to read several off here. I don't expect you to uh, flip through your Bibles, but you might just want to jot these down. I don't even have them on the screen or anything, but I just want to show you a few things. There are many more, but a few things why Jesus was sent. First and foremost, Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus was sent to be a Savior. Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus was sent to be a Savior. Jesus was sent to be a servant. Luke 4.18 Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. In these verses, we see that Jesus was sent to preach. Jesus was sent to heal. And Jesus was sent to set people free. John 10.10 Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came. Jesus was sent to give life. Jesus was sent to do the Father's will. John 6.38 says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And ultimately, John 17.4, 
Jesus was sent to glorify the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. We could go on this morning, but I think we get the message that Jesus Christ came and was sent by the Father for a multitude of purposes that centered around the glory of the Father and the salvation of man. But what Jesus is doing in this commission is saying, as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. So the idea is now that the mission of Christ becomes our mission. That God's mission became Jesus' mission, becomes our mission. Jesus has commissioned us with his work. So what we ought to do is to look at how Jesus was sent and then we emulate that. So no, we cannot be a Savior, but we can point to the Savior. We go through the Gospels and we look at how Jesus walked and talked and lived His life and followed His Father. And we strive to follow those commands in the same way. And so that means we aim to love like Jesus. We aim to serve like Jesus, to forgive like Jesus, to preach like Jesus, to obey like Jesus, and to live like Jesus. But don't miss the main mission. We ought to be saving men. Not in of ourselves, we point people to Jesus. And so what that means is to love people like Jesus without telling them about the love of Jesus is useless in God's kingdom. To serve people like Jesus without telling them about the one we serve, that's useless. To forgive people like Jesus without telling them about the one who can forgive their sins, that's useless. To preach like Jesus without telling them the message of Jesus, it's useless. To obey like Jesus without telling people about the one who we obey, that's useless. To live like Jesus without telling people about the source of life, it's useless. In God's economy. We could keep going. But I hope you get the point that Jesus' mission is now our mission. Jesus was sent to die for sinners so like you and like me so that we could be reconciled to God. So that we could spend eternity with Him. Don't miss out on that mission. Don't miss out on that privilege. We have been called to offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice, willing to reach people for the sake of the gospel. And notice at the beginning of this commission, he says one more time, peace be with you. Why did he say it again? He just said it. He's saying, peace be with you. Well, the first piece, I think, was to say, it's okay, I'm not a ghost. And they got, they got excited. And now he says, peace be with you. Hang on a second. Calm down. Listen, because here's more. 
You see, some people like to say that Jesus is going to meet you where you are, and that's true. But when Jesus meets the disciples where they are and meets the disciples with exactly what they needed, he didn't expect them to stay sitting there. He didn't expect them to stay in that little room with a door locked. Now, Jesus is saying, peace be unto you, because I got something next. I've got your next step. And I've got your next mission. And it's a big one. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Don't be afraid. You got this. And I think he goes through that because I think we can be like the disciples. Right? Where sometimes the disciples were just scared. They were uncertain. They were skeptical. You know? Um, sometimes I think we can be that same way when it comes to accomplishing this mission that Jesus has sent us on. Where we can be afraid. Where I don't know how I'm supposed to witness to people. What do people say about me? What about people like... Talk to me about, oh, I'm that weird Jesus person that always talks about Jesus. And what will that do to my reputation? Or maybe I just don't know what to say, and so I need um, help. And Jesus says, peace be unto you. Don't be afraid. Don't let fear stop you from accomplishing this mission that I am calling you to. And that's why I'm thankful the scene doesn't end there. Look at verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus knows us. Jesus sends us. But Jesus also equips us. Just as he equipped the disciples. This was a preview about what was going to happen at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But this is an important part of this commission here. Because it's reassuring the disciples that, hey, I'm giving you this big mission. My job is now your job to reach and save souls. But I don't expect you to do it by yourself. Because guys, come on. I know you. Remember the garden a couple of nights ago. And when he looks at you and me, he knows. He knows our flaws and our fears. And he says, that's okay. I'm not expecting you to do it by yourself or in your own power. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Earlier, Jesus, in John chapter 14, had told the disciples that, Hey, I'm going to send you the Helper. This is what He says in John 14. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You see, we can spend a whole sermon or a whole sermon series on how the Holy Spirit helps us. But let me give you a few thoughts. Because I think maybe we've always heard and we've always said, well, oh yeah, well, I know, Jesus gave me the Holy Spirit and I'm saved and I have it and he's supposed to guide me and he equips me, but I don't really know what that means. So I'm going to give you four practical things from three different passages. Later on in this passage of John chapter 14, um, we learn how does, the, how does the Holy Spirit equip us? Well, number one, he teaches us. In John 14:26, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so when Jesus says, 
I'm breathing the Holy Spirit to you. When Jesus equips you, when he equips me, one of the ways he does that is by teaching us. The Holy Spirit teaches us. Now it's important to understand that the Holy Spirit teaching us doesn't look like this. Teach me, Holy Spirit. As he downloads information. That, that's not how it works. But we have this thing. It's called God's Word. Do you know who penned God's Word? The Holy Spirit. Do you know who lives in us? The Holy Spirit. Maybe the Holy Spirit can help us understand God's Word. And so He teaches us primarily through His Word. And so it's something that we are active in. He equips us. He has given us the Holy Spirit so that we can learn and we can understand and we hear and we listen and we go to church and we listen to sermons and we go to Bible studies and we're involved in small groups, but we also, that's all centered around God's Word and we spend time in Scripture to allow the Spirit to teach you. You want the Holy Spirit to equip you? Open the Word. Let Him illuminate the Word to you. In the next verse, John fourteen twenty seven, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, the peace that came with the presence of Jesus is not available to you and me because Jesus is in heaven. But Jesus said, you know what? It's actually better for you, disciples, that I go to heaven. You know why? Because when I go to heaven, I am sending you my spirit. And that spirit of peace is available to you and me through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that everything is going to go right and nothing's going to happen and you're just going to live life with a happy-go-lucky attitude. But what it does mean is that we can have peace with the Father, number one. And then number two, it means we can have peace no matter what situation or circumstance comes our way. Because we know that the Holy Spirit is working in us and through us to accomplish the work of God. So he teaches us, he gives us peace, but he also leads us. In John 16, Jesus says, And when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. What this tells us is there's some practical ways that the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us through life. The first way is through the conviction of sin. When you sin, when the Spirit should work on your heart. And guess what? We know what sin is. Again, it's defined in God's Word. And so as we read Word, as, we're, as we read His Word, as we're open to the teaching and illumination of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit goes to work in our lives, revealing sin, not only actions, but attitudes. And so as we're open to the Spirit, if we want to be equipped for the work of the ministry, then we have to allow the Spirit to work in us and mold us and guide us, and it's going to require a change of heart. It's going to require understanding and a sensitivity to sin, and that's the Holy Spirit's job. It's not other Christians' job to point out your sin. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict of sin. There's a place for accountability but it starts with being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. 
But being led by the Spirit isn't just a negative of stay away from this and this is where you're doing wrong and don't sin. There's also this positive aspect of he also convicts of righteousness. And what the text is speaking of or the Bible speaks of is that the Spirit, while it tells us and identifies sin in our life and our heart, it also shows us what is right and where to go. So so the Spirit says, well, if you're not going to sin over here, I'm going to lead you away from sin and to righteousness. And I'm going to identify righteous behavior and righteousness and what holiness looks like, primarily, again, through His Word that He has written to us. And so as we take in the text, as we listen and learn, the Holy Spirit guides us away from sin and into righteousness. That's the Holy Spirit leading us. And then lastly, He teaches us, He gives us peace, He leads us, and He gifts us for service. You can go through, uh, especially the book of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll just read verse 4 for you. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. If you are a disciple, if you are a follower of Christ, if you have been saved, you have the Spirit indwelling in you. And a byproduct or a gift of the Spirit is a spiritual gift. There are ways that you are expected to use your gift, not for you, but for the service of the church, for the edification of the body. And so my question would be, Jesus has equipped you. The Holy Spirit is in you. Are you using your gift? Do you know what your gift is? And some people may not have a, well, this is my specific gift, and I took a test, and this is what it told me, and tests are good, and and that's fine, but I think it's about this being led and identifying where you can be used for God in His church and in His mission. And so there's plenty of ways. How do I know my gift? Well, start doing something and figure out if it works for you. I got a list. I can tell you. Do you like kids? Do you want to work with kids? We got nursery availability, a water availability. I need a middle school, Sunday school teacher currently. That'd be awesome. You want to do that? Um, you don't like kids? That's not good for you. Okay. We've got food pantry. We've got a ministry that goes out and helps serves meals to homeless. We've got all kinds of different ways. We've got a. Um, you have to be asked, but we've got a deacon board and an elder board. Maybe we need to uh, be working on our spiritual uh, gifts of administration or discernment and so we're we're working or developing our gifts so that we can be used for service and the best way to do that or identify those gifts is to jump in is to talk to people is to figure out where do you what do you enjoy doing what are you good at you're not good at anything well can you pick a piece of trash up on the floor and you're like well that's not a spiritual gift well it is if you can do it with a good attitude it is if you can do it and say, hey, this is for the glory of God. If I can't do anything else, I'm going to be the best trash picker-upper there ever been. That can be a spiritual gift. Maybe your spiritual gift is giving and you've been blessed and you just love to give. Not everyone likes that. I don't know what it is, but I know that Jesus has equipped you with His Spirit and the Spirit brings a gift. Use it for His mission and His church. The Spirit is our assurance that we can continue the mission that Jesus was sent into the world to accomplish. So He knows us, He knows you, He sends you, and He equips you. He knows us despite your fears, despite your failures, despite your weaknesses, despite your mistakes. 
He calls you to his mission. And so he sends you. We are expected to follow his command, not suggestion, command to reach the world for his sake, just as he followed the Father. And he equips us. Jesus knows that we can't do it on our own. He's given us his spirit to accomplish the work here on earth. But we're not done. The question becomes, how will you respond? And I want you to consider the disciples. These same disciples that were huddled in a room scared, these same disciples that ran out of the garden, that denied Jesus, these same disciples birthed the biggest movement the world has ever seen, and that is the church. These disciples, at the birth of the church, at Pentecost, started this movement, and then started to gain this reputation. Who are these Jesus followers? And we need to get rid of them, because they are turning the world upside down. That was their reputation. And then, if you look at church tradition, you see that these same disciples, the ones that were huddled in the room and scared on the night of the resurrection, are the ones who were martyred for Christ. James was said to be beheaded. Matthew was said to go to Ethiopia, where he was killed by a sword. John, well, he was the one, he just refused to die. He got boiled in a vat of oil, and he just wouldn't die. And so they shipped him off to an island to waste away, which he didn't. He wrote letters that are now part of our New Testament. James, the brother of Jesus, he wasn't an apostle here. He didn't even believe in Jesus until the resurrection. And then he became one of the leaders of the church. And it said that James would refuse to recount his belief in Christ, so he was thrown from the wall of the temple, which was like a hundred feet in the air to his death. Bartholomew became a missionary to Asia. He was whipped to death. Andrew, he faced crucifixion in Greece, but his tormentors tied him up in a way that prolonged his death. And for two days, he preached Christ as he hung on a cross. Peter requested to be hung upside down, to be crucified upside down, because he didn't want consider himself worthy enough to die in the same way that Jesus did. Thomas went to India where he was stabbed through with a spear. Matthias was stoned. He was beheaded. And it's believed Paul in Rome was beheaded as well at the hand of Nero. Now look, it's impossible to actually go back into history and to verify every one of those church traditions. But what we cannot deny is that something happened to these men. That something changed. They went from this fearful group huddled in a room to the boldest witnesses we've ever seen for Jesus. What happened was basically two supernatural things. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There's no other way to explain this kind of faithfulness to the mission of Jesus. So how will you respond? Are you going to be part of the church movement? Are you going to be part of making disciples like these early disciples were? Will you be part of influencing your community, our community? What do people think of us as individuals 
What about the church? Are people around Lake St. Louis saying, man, those church people at Chapel of the Lake, they're just turning the community upside down for Jesus. Do they know we're here? Jesus has equipped us for the mission and we just have to respond. Will you die for Him if that's what's required? We must ask ourselves, am I following Christ the way Christ followed the Father? That's the gauge of how we're supposed to live the Christian life. Let me tell you two stories as we end. Two, two guys. Two guys centuries apart. Two guys where you've probably never heard of. And their Christian life looked very different. Because I don't want you leaving today that, like, oh, I have to go die for Jesus or else I'm not a good Christian. We're going to get to a martyr. But the first story is about a guy... And his name is Ed Kimball. I don't know if you've heard of Ed Kimball before. Do you know what his claim to fame is? He was a Sunday school teacher. He was a Sunday school teacher who loved kids and who had a heart and a burden for the mission, which is evangelism. And so he had a burden for a kid a young kid who worked at a shoe store. And he was said, you know what? I need to go tell this kid about Jesus. And so he writes about this and he's debating and, and he gets up to the storefront and he almost doesn't go in and he's like, nah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in and the guy was in the back. And so Ed Kimball goes to the guy and he sits him down and says, son, I need to tell you about Jesus. I need to tell you about his love for you. And the young man, Ed Kimball, says it must have been just the time, at the right time, in the right circumstance, that he needed to hear the light. And he got it. In the back of this shoe store, this young man gave his life to Christ. Because Ed Kimball, random Sunday school teacher, decided to share the gospel, to be sent by Jesus. That young shoe clerk, his name was D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody, who not only started this whole huge ministry in Chicago, but D.L. Moody's ministry influenced and saw the salvation of both Billy Sunday and Billy Graham. Because one man caught the vision of the mission. He was sent. He was sent to save souls not just to sit in the church. It wasn't Sunday school. It wasn't just teaching a Sunday school class because it didn't happen in the Sunday school class. It happened in the back of a shoe store. You can do that. I can do that. I don't know if you're going to go to a shoe store or teach a Sunday school class, but what I know is we should have our eyes open for opportunities and have our minds on the mission. And then we have this other story. Another story, I couldn't pronounce his name this morning, called him Mr. T. Now I know him as T. Lemmy. His name is Telemachus. Telemachus was a monk. And Telemachus was this monk, and he had this impression 
that he needed to go to Rome. He was like, I think God wants me to go to Rome. Now, I don't know all the backstory. I'm not saying you should listen for weird things. But he's like, I'm going to go to Rome. And he's a monk and he's a follower of God and Jesus. And so he goes to Rome and he gets to Rome and he's like, well, I don't know what I'm doing here. Maybe I can find some people to encourage or a church to go to. And he realizes that there's a big commotion and, and something big is happening as thousands and thousands of people descend on Rome. It's about 400 A.D. And what's happening is um, everyone's going down to the Colosseum for the regular routine of the gladiator games. And this monk has never seen it before, and he doesn't know exactly what's going on. And so he goes in with the crowd, and he's there among thousands and thousands of people, and he sees what's happening in these games, where these slaves and these Christians and whoever else are in this pit and in this arena, and all that the crowd wants to see is blood and death. And so this little monk says, i got to do something. And so he I don't know, hops the fence, climbs the wall, whatever it is, goes into the arena, stands between two gladiators. And he says six words. Six words. In the name of Christ, stop. And the crowd boos and jeers and the gladiator pushes him off. Hops back up and says, musters all that he can, and he says six words. In the name of Christ, stop. Crowd's infuriated. He's delaying their games. They want blood, and so they pick up everything good, stones, rocks, whatever, stone the monk on the floor of the arena. Was that what he was sent to do? Is that worth it? Did he accomplish anything? I mean, the guy just died, and the bloodshed continued. Well, I think it was worth it. He stood up. He couldn't stand by. But the bloodshed did stop. Because what did happen, and what is in the history books, is that this story of this monk, Telemachus, went to the emperor. And when the emperor heard of this monk who gave his life when he saw the barbaric things that were happening in the arena, he put an end to the gladiator games. Saving who knows how many people, Christians, martyrs, never saw it, never knew it, couldn't have foresaw it. He just did what he was supposed to do on the day that he showed up. So I don't think that many of you anytime soon are going to be in between two gladiators saying, in the name of Christ, stop. But I do have six words for you. I have six words for you that we ought to be saying, if not yelling, at the top of our lungs. Jesus Christ came to save you. That's what people need to hear. Those six words. Jesus Christ came to save you and you and you and you. There's a world out there but even if we don't talk about the world out there, do you know how many thousands of people live within a couple of miles of our church? They need to hear these six words. Jesus Christ came to save you. It's one week after Easter. 
It's nearly 2,000 years later. But the mission today is still the same that it was on the night of the resurrection. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. How will you respond? Let's pray. Dear Lord, it's our prayer that you would embolden us, that you would give us a heart for your mission. Lord, I'm so thankful that you know us, that you know our flaws and our mistakes and our shortcomings, and you still say, I'll use you. Peace be unto you. Lord, I'm even more thankful that it's not about us, And you're not even counting on us to do anything of our own power or our own strength. That you've equipped us for this mission. That you've given us the Spirit. Lord, I pray that that would be a real in our lives. That we would consider where our place is in your mission. We pray these things in your name. Amen.